welcome to the Mothman in the Bible Belt podcast with your host, Buck Fantastic. Actor, comedian, and writer Sam Pancake swapped the green rolling hills of West Virginia for the bright lights and big pollution of Los Angeles. He currently stars as Carter French on ABC's A Million Little Things. He's amassed 109 roles in television and film and starred numerous commercials and theatrical productions in his 30-plus years in show business. On this episode of the Mothman in the Bible Belt podcast, Sam Pancake dishes on his humble beginnings in West Virginia, life in Hollywood, and how he got from point A to point B in his career. Join me, your host, Buck Fantastic, for another exciting episode of the Mothman in the Bible Belt podcast. Lights, camera, action! What was life like growing up in Romney? Life was um, good. It was the good parts were um, just the small town, all the almost now stereotypical, wholesome small town events. Like since it's around Halloween time now in the fall, um, I I miss living in L.A. I miss like the piles of burning leaves um, and the smell of just fall coming in and um the you know the the frost is on the pumpkin kind of things and like an old-fashioned halloween christmas's holidays were amazing i loved living in the big house that i grew up in i loved being in the river there was lots of it i liked i'll just stay positive and say that um but the the also like i knew i wanted to live in a city i like knew i was born a city boy and i always wanted even though i'd never been to a city because prior to romney um, from my first grade and before we lived in Somersville, West Virginia, Nicholas County. So though I have nothing but because I was th- that was such a young, innocent time. I have nothing but the best memories of my life from Somersville. You get to the lake a lot. We did. And one time my father, I thought he threw me on purpose, but he turns out literally a few years before he died. He told me that he accidentally dropped me in. And I, I remember being really freaked out and I was afraid of water for a while, which I learned at the Summersville Lake, but I conquered it later on and eventually learned to swim and I'm not afraid of water anymore. You say in previous podcast interviews, you were depressed and suicidal as a child. <laughs> How did you get wow. through that? Um, I guess that kind of like is the, uh, the counterpoint to what I just told you about my magical small town existence. I knew I, I knew I was gay really early. I knew I was gay or I knew that I had these feelings strongly for men. No other way to put it when I was like four or five. And I knew that like, you know, my dad was a preacher. It was very Christian, very, especially in the sixties and seventies there and eighties through the nineties and on like a very, you know, conservative, um, churchy, bible upbringing and like a faggot or a queer was the worst insult of all i knew that i fit that description on the inside the other insult was calling other boys a woman which is when you think about you don't even have to think about it it's so misogynist like that was such an insult which always confused me because i knew nothing but like amazing women 
you know, and girls in my life in West Virginia, like all my relatives and all my friends. So I always thought that was weird. And, um, you know, I was fairly effeminate. I didn't play sport. I mean, I played sports. I wasn't great at them. Um, my family was big and everyone was pretty athletic, but me and um, we were competitive. And, you know, so that was the suicidal stuff was just like, I was just really depressed, especially in fifth grade. I had a teacher that was really rough. I had just came out of fourth grade where I had a teacher who was amazing. It just shows to go, yeah, how a, one teacher can make such a difference in your life. Um, I, huh? Right. Right. And I've had some amazing ones and I've had some freaking nightmares. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I was just very, how I got through it was, you know, I, I, one of the things I remember learning in Sunday school was like, if you go to, if you commit suicide, you go straight to hell. And I was like, I don't want that. But then I, I remember questioning my Sunday school teacher, poor woman. She was just like the doctor's wife or whatever. She wasn't some biblical scholar. There's these nice church ladies who are teaching Sunday school. I was like, oh, my grandfather committed suicide. Is he burning in hell now? And she did not know how to handle that. <laughs> so that was like, and I also was just like, I, it wasn't that I wanted myself to be dead. I just wanted out. I wanted a different life. And so I escaped through, you know, TV and movies. And the thing that kept me going was, which keeps me going to this day, whatever this thread, this will, this perseverance, this ambition, this drive that I had, this creativity that I have that like got me through that. Cause I always knew one day I'm going to get through this. I'm going to move away. I can have a boyfriend maybe if I live in a city and no one will try to kill me or beat me up. And I wasn't horribly bullied by anyone. I have to admit there, but I, I just felt internally the anxiety and fear all the time of being found out and what would happen to me and the shame of embarrassment on my family and all that stuff. So that's what was hard. Were you subjected to conversion therapy? No, I wasn't because no one knew I was gay. Like I never came out. I never said I was nothing. I wasn't caught. Like it's, I mean, I'm sure anyone, <laughs> people could sniff it out of me. I mean, I got caught faggot a few times, but I think almost everyone did no matter what their situation was on, on you know, schoolyard rural West Virginia um because it's such a macho culture you know and th yeah then we try to convert me because no one you know that would have in entailed me saying hey guess what i think i'm gay of course i wasn't gonna do that in the 70s and 80s in west virginia no 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 so how did no. your minister dad take it take what you coming out but honey i never came out to him we you never didn't? talked about it this is called old school southern waspy we didn't talk about anything we were not there's six kids we were not we were not emotionally close. My father's a whole different podcast. Just suffice to say, my when in my young adulthood, I was I had an aunt that I was very close to. She was like my mom's sister. She's like my second mom who I came out to. I had the support of my five siblings. And one of my straight sisters was like, I was like, should I tell them or him? And they were like, why bother? They, they don't care about our lives. I mean, why make it harder for you? This is the thinking back then. And my, my, I have a sister who was, who was gay. And back in the day, she tried to come out to my mother. And my mother said, your personal life is bare left private. We were, that's how we were. We didn't talk about things. We didn't talk about emotions. There was no, I love, it's different now in the family. And my father died in 2018, but there's just like, it's just a, it's really hard to really sum up in a few sentences, but no, I never came out to my father. You and Drew Drogi, aka Drogi, Drogi, hard G, Drogi, 
yeah. aka Chloe Sylvania and Forrest Gump, had a two-man act called Strong Choices. What inspired that? Oh, well, there was a show we did. I'm not saying what it was. Drew and I did together with a group of people. And there was a guy in it who was older, another actor. And he loved to give us lots of unsolicited advice. Very spiritual, unsolicited. Here's what you need to do. Condescending. And we've known other people like that. And Drew we would both get these emails from him. We, we didn't respect him or like him sadly. And we didn't think he would, and he was kind of a diva in this, in this production. And so we were like, we wanted, we wanted to do a two person show. We wanted to, and I don't remember the specifics, but other than that, we just got together and we came up with these names, Piotr and Grimsley. And that these were guys who were like, had been actors, had chosen to leave Hollywood, had chosen to leave show business, but actually never got any work as actors and moved up in the desert and started their own spiritual self-help center. And they were just these stinky, hippie, gay exes who were always fighting, like the, who, who, who have, the, have the ego to think that they need to come down to LA or New York and teach these workshops for $750 a person. And so it was just, it was just that. And based on all these, especially out here and it's everywhere, but all the, and I'm a pretty spiritual person. I can get down with a lot of new age stuff and I do, but like, it was also just a spoof of all the like rituals and crystals and naming your spirit animal and tarot and like all that world. So we would do these things. We called them, um, showmanars where it was a show and a seminar and we would just teach people how to be better because we were so much better than everyone else many people know you from kitchen confidential a million oh. little things yeah love spring international arrested development pretty and will and grace yeah. you had parts in movies like legally blonde 2 dumpling here recently gia yeah. which i happen to love yeah, my film good. teacher hated it but i loved it <laughs> And Space Station 76, which you yep. co-wrote. Yep. You've had 109 roles that I've counted on Internet Movie Database. What's yeah. been your favorite role to date? The role of mother. My kids are the most important thing to me. That was a joke. Um, I really, wow. I, I loved Love Spring a lot because I was a series regular and you make more money. And I really loved improvising with my friends like Jane Lynch and Wendy McClendon Covey and Jennifer Cox and Jack Plotnick. That was, and I helped to kind of create that show a little bit. Um, I got to have put some input into it to the, to the producers and creators, which was great. I really liked that. Um, I like, this is me in middle age. I like the ones where I make money. Um, I love doing Dumplin. I mean, there's different roles. There's a, there's two different aspects or, at least two aspects. One is the experience of doing it, um, who you're working with, what the director's like, the material, the location, the fun of getting to do it, whether it's a comedy and you have to be funny or it's a drama and you have to cry. And there's also like, oh, what role the human being that I'm portraying is my favorite person. Um, so it's two different things. But Dumplin' was so much fun. It was in Atlanta for two weeks. Everyone was fun and great. My friend Ann Fletcher directed it. I love Atlanta. I love being on location. I love my hotel. I had free time. I had other friends who were in Atlanta working at the same time. We got to hang out. Who's been your most difficult co-stars to work with? Drew Drogi. Next question. I'm kidding. That's a joke. Um, 
I adored Drew. I was just with him the other day. Um, oh my God, I'm not going to tell you. Are you kidding me? Say it out loud. Nice try, uh, Mothman. I am. I'll save that for the book. Um, <laughs> I would like to say that thing of like I worked with a a cocker spaniel once who bit me, and he's a bitch. But no, I've only worked with good animals too. I think. Yeah. Best co-star to work with. I love working with Drew. I love working with because I'm also the IMDb stuff. It's 109 like movies or TV stuff. I've also done a shit ton of commercials and I've also done a shit ton of, and that's a specific, I know legal measurement, a shit ton, a shit ton of stage stuff. So in terms of, you know who I had a great time with? I did. I recurred on the show called life with Bonnie with Bonnie hunt. And I got to, we, that was also heavily improvised. And I got to do two of them with Dax Shepard who I love Dax and he was so much fun to work with. I loved now I'm just like thinking back. This is all like 20 years this ago. Um, I got to do, um, Oh no, now I'm blanking. It was always fun to do will and grace with Sean Hayes and Megan Mullally. I've always liked working with Allison Janney. I've got to work with her twice. I think she's amazing. Um, Julie Louis Dreyfus. I got to do Kirby enthusiasm. Well, these are people I only got to work with for a day or two ish. So it would be really hard to have a bad experience in a day or two though. Those women that those two are well known to be like the best ever, you know? Um, so Julia Lou Dreyfus was great. I always love working with Jane Lynch. As I said before, I love Jane. Oh, 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 and now currently a million little things. I play the assistant of Grace Park, uh, her character, Catherine, and I love Grace. I'm so lucky because when I do it, I almost only am with her and I fly up from LA to Vancouver um, or like last fall, I was there for three months or what, but, but all my stuff is almost all with grace and she's amazing. And I just, I mean, if we lived in the same city, we'd be, I'd be bugging her to hang out all the time. She's so great. Everyone on that show is really cool though. And I'm not just saying that it's a really particularly good group. So we've, they've been very lucky to have these great people and I'm lucky enough to get to go be in it sometimes. Do you feel that Hollywood has pigeonholed you in gay parts? Yeah. Yeah. I was talking about this on another podcast recently um, and I only mention that because I sometimes don't realize things until I'm saying them out loud. And the thing is, it it's, it's it was good and bad. Like back in the day, there's a lot of stuff I know I didn't get because people knew I was gay because I was out. And if people, casting directors knew me, you know, you could, they would even hire gay guys to play gay roles. It was very rare. Um, they didn't write that many gay roles. And still, how do I put this tactfully? Um, but then the stuff I did get, I was like, yes, I'll play gay roles. I'll try not to be a big stereotype. Even a lot of the ones I played were like, oh, you know, which was or just these kind of flamboyant stereotypes. And we, as we know, those people exist, but all kinds of gay people or LGBTQ people or queer people exist. There's not just one way to be any of those things. You know, there's not just 13 ways to be any of those things. There's a million. And so as um but I know there was some stuff that I went in for and would do and would do well and not be like weird about it because a lot of straight guys wouldn't want to do it, play a character or go in for a character who was even remotely thought of as gay. But then later, like, you know, now if I was just another vaguely Tom Hanks looking average, I'm so average in every way, some average looking like blue eyed white guy, would I have done anything? I mean, the gay, I now realize that it's, you know, my superpower and it's one of my gifts. And I've been able to work for over 30 years now in this industry somehow while being this thing that was taboo or unspoken of or rarely allowed to be 
in showbiz and entertainment and even more rarely allowed to be not as a stereotype. So I guess my point is, yes, I've been pigeonholed and it's been good and it's been bad. So directors don't see you as being able to play a remotely butch part? I played some. I've done some things that I've been pretty butch in. Um, and I've, I've, especially in commercials, I played lots with like, I'm a dad and these kids are driving me crazy. You know, my baby just got born. I'm the luckiest man on earth. Like, you know, I've, I've done that stuff too, but there's a lot of things where like, they're going to book a guy who really embodies that because on camera acting, it's not like in college when you're like, I'm doing checkoff and I'm playing an old man. And then tomorrow I'll play Romeo and Romeo and Juliet. And then the next day I'll play, you know, a fancy Lord in a restoration comedy. Like, that was the kind of training I got, which was really more for regional theater and repertory, which I don't do. But on camera, when this is all you see, you're going to you, you get cast real close to home. And I've been like, you know, and it's I, I, I like when I just get to play like a lawyer, you know, or a, some guy, some doctor. Like I finally I'm going in for all kinds of different things. And there's some things I've been offered that I couldn't do. So, like, you know, it's it's it, things have opened up a lot more um, for me luckily in the last 10 years as they write as there's more of tv in general and they're writing a more of a more of a variety of of queer roles or not queer roles you know there's just more there's just more volume now so you land where you land you said in previous interviews you had issues with meth and alcohol how did you get sober did someone stage an intervention or did you just do it yourself well my intervention was like this um I had this, I went missing one night. There was a manhunt. They found me at another friend's house. It's like passed out drunk. And they took my two friends, Robert and Marcel took me to my sister who live, I have a sister that lives here and she's a therapist and works in mental health. And she said, cause I had missed a show that night. I was just do this, this, this sketch comedy, uh, to do a sketch in a comedy show at UCB with Drew, with Drew Drogi. And I just didn't show up. And I mean, I knew where I was, but they didn't. And it was at the very end days of my really, really heavy drinking, which was like, Oh, eight. I mean, I've always been a party boy. I've always been able to consume and hold my drugs and liquor well, whatever that means. Um, or so I thought. And the last three or four years of my drinking got really bad. And then when they took me to my sister and my sister said, you missed a show. That's your bottom. You're going into rehab. I said, yes. So my joke is like, they tried to make me go to rehab. <laughs> I said, yes. Okay, I'll do it. And that was it. And I knew because I was waiting for someone to stop me. And thank God what it wasn't like me being in a drunk driving accident or hurting anyone. So, um, yeah, it was nine years in June. I've been sober. And, yeah, I really had my my drinking and partying went from like, woohoo, to like, oh, shit, I can't get out of this by myself. Congratulations on nine years sobriety. It's thank difficult, you. especially in this state. Just about everyone's on drugs. I know. I know. It's hard. Your brother, Chet Pancake, did a great documentary on mountaintop removal mining called Black Diamonds. Yes. I saw it. It was awesome. Thank you. Were you and your family a bunch of hippie environmentalists growing up? <laughs> no. No, it's interesting because we also didn't grow up in coal country. Like we did when I was in Nicholas County in, in, in Somersville. But then we moved to Romney, which is, you know, there's not coal in Romney. It's in the Potomac Highlands. It's more like, you know, it's there between Maryland and Virginia. And it's their farms when we when we were little, at least like, you know, farms and orchards and hunting. And it's really beautiful and, you know, small town life. But it wasn't coal country. But 
Anne, my sister Anne, who also was a part of that process, and, and Chet were, you know, staunch environmentalists on behalf of West Virginia. And, you know, my mother grew up in Huntington. We were in Huntington a lot growing up, and we would go back to visit Summersville. And, you know, we were, we would visit all over the state when we were young. We have relatives down there. So, yeah, it wasn't, no, no, my parents were very old school, very waspy, <laughs> old school. I was raised in the tradition of a Southern gentleman, as my father would always tell me, um, who apparently aren't allowed to be gay. Um, little did he know. So, no, we were not hippie environmentalists at all. How did you get into acting? Uh, what do you mean? Like, how did I... You mean like were you doing like school plays and stuff like that? Oh yeah, I mean yeah, I, I knew I wanted to do it from seeing movies when I was little. I was like, oh, that looks really fun and interesting. And then we didn't have a drama department or a theater department in high school at Hampshire High. We had drama club and we did plays there on a pretty minor scale. And then my parents, you know, for whatever <laughs> issues we've had, didn't stand in my way to go to WVU and major in theater. They were just like, you know. They didn't even say you need a backup plan. Like everyone said that, but I they didn't make me minor in anything. And I now, though I was always so mad at them at the time and mad at the world as often we are when we're that age and like just want to get the fuck out of the state. Um, uh, they let me major in theater and my dad paid for it. Like, you know, it was, we were very fortunate that way, very privileged that way, which I, of course, privilege doesn't see itself. So I didn't see that at the time. And um, but then after college, you had to like keep your grade point level average up and you had to or you'd he'd cut you off and then the minute you graduated you were cut off um which was fine you know um if and then if you wanted to go to grad school or just out in the world you were on your own and oh boy were we <laughs> he would not give a nickel <clears throat> after that but um even as alone anyway that's a different story uh i turned out okay wait Oh, so I, yes, then I moved to LA after WVU, which I had a great time at WVU in the theater department, got a really solid education there, th theatrical education, not on camera, that came later. Moved to LA and I just started taking classes and going to workshops and I, these, they would do these casting director workshops, you would go in, a casting director from a TV show or commercials or commercials would be there or movies, and you would get a script and you would cold read it and you, and then they were ideally supposed to remember you and bring you in for things. And luckily for me, they did remember me and bring me in for things. And I got an agent and a manager and started booking commercials. And I started booking tiny little TV parts and just built it up from there. And I also worked in casting from 88 after restaurant, after waiting as working. Oh my God, I'm hungry. After working as a waiter at restaurants for the first couple of years, no, really just the first year, I then started work studying at a casting facility and then I took classes there and then I got hired there full time as like a PA making like, you know, nothing a week. And I still, but I look back and think of how little I thought I could live on. I was not, we were not raised talking about money at all. I just did not know what things, I, that's the one thing people need to raise their kids about is money. Was um, rent more affordable in California? Oh, back yeah, then? yeah. Uh, well, yeah, it's always been, it's gets worse every year. So yeah, I mean, like it didn't feel that way. Like, you know, I remember I was like getting a studio for $250 at one point. I was like, oh my God, it was a big leap, but you know, whatever. Um, so yeah, that's what I did. And I started acting and that's how it happened. So you have a recurring role in A Million Little Things. How did that role come about? DJ Nash, who's the creator of that show and the showrunner, saw me, it's probably been like almost 20 years now. He was his first pilot as a producer and showrunner and creator uh, it was a sitcom based on his life. 
I went into audition for a part that it was I was totally wrong for. And but he really liked what I did anyway, because it was like this beer drinking frat bro, like straight dude um, who's like in a lazy boy recliner. That's what I or eating pizza, like one of those like this butch dude. bro. And I went in and was just myself doing it. And it was so funny to them. He said, you're not right for this, but every time I'm able to hire you, I'm going to. And one hears that a lot. Like I've been fortunate enough to have people say to me, I really want to work with you if I make it big. I'm taking you with me. DJ's actually done it. So eventually he did start to be in a position where he could hire me and he's put me in all this stuff. And then um, he put me in the show and I'm very fortunate and grateful. You hear a lot about people going out West, attempting to pursue a career in acting that wind up in porn or tricking. <laughs> Has that ever happened to you or any of your pals? <laughs> Honey, it's different now. First of all, it's called sex work. And I do have friends that do sex work and some of it's acting, but it didn't happen back in the day. When I first moved here, n no, none of my friends <laughs> that I can remember were sex workers or worked in porn. Now I know a lot of people who are actors and otherwise who have done sex work in their life and or do it now or have only fans, not people who are, I mean, I'm hooray for everybody, you know, especially this pandemic. I knew a lot of, I mean, because I'm gay, I mostly just know what the guys are up to. But I know a, a few guys who like, well, I'm going to do OnlyFans and no one was complaining and good for them. You do plays in a podcast on the side. Is it difficult for actors that aren't regulars on a TV show and that don't get regularly cast in movies to get by? It can be. Yeah. I mean, it's one's life. Like my life is my one of my main lessons uh, has been learning to manage my anxiety around that. And one of the reasons I drank into so many drugs, especially uh, from like 07 till I stopped completely, excuse me, in 2012 was anxiety about career and not working and not always knowing when rent was going to come from. And of course, the fact that I was drinking and drugging so much meant that I wasn't doing enough to keep my money in my life manageable and stable. Uh, There's a lot more I could have been doing that didn't. And now I've changed that. That's why I'm so busy all the time now. I'm like, I feel like I'm making up for lost time. I don't feel stressed about it. Um, and as I've kept clean and stayed in therapy and gotten more emotionally healthy, work has gotten better. You know, it's also helped that like we have this booming industry now with so many streamers and channels and shows and everything. But yeah, it is hard. People have to, I've been fortunate that I, I, I've, I made this decision a long time ago. I'll keep my overhead low. I don't own a house. I stay places that, that are cute as hell, but rent is cheap. The last two situations I've been in have been friends, guest houses, which I really love that. It also means I can travel, go do whatever I want. Don't have to worry about anything. I would love to own a house one day, but I'm not ready to, because it's always something with home ownership. You know, I grew up in a 22 room, big ass old house in the country. My friends here who even rich and famous friends and they got the money to cover it, but it's always fucking something, you know, it, when you're home ownership and now it, it's, it, it's, I don't have to worry about any of that stuff. So yeah, people do have a lot of anxiety around that. It can be hard. And I have chosen, I mean, not really chosen. I've just been fortunate that I never really wanted to get married or have kids. So I don't have to any, I don't even have a cat right now. Like, and I love it. So I am like, just got to take care of me and have a real good time at the same time. And then, you know, and I've learned how to manage my anxiety around not knowing what's coming next. But also the good news about that stuff is 
you just it forces you to be more creative. You got to write. You got to do a podcast. You got to you got to write a play. You got to write a one man show, which I've done a few times. You got to come up with characters. You got to ask your friends like Drew. Do you want to do a two man show? Let's bitch. Let's get some money. You know, the thing that I say to young people now, or and I wish I could said it to myself, is make friends with the hustle because it never stops. And we didn't really say the grind back then. Um, at least in my circle of friends or people I knew, but it is the grind. Like I wish I'd made friends with the grind because it with the uh, make friends with auditioning. Don't be resentful. This is because I was so could be so resentful and have an attitude like, why do I have to audition? Like, how dare I, first of all? Like, what a cocky little bitch I was. Not that I said that out loud, it was just in my head. But I was just like, love every aspect of it. Love the not working, figure out how to do it. Your job really is what to do with yourself between jobs anyway. And your other job is finding a job. So learn to love it or get the hell out. That's why I got no patience for people like, meh, 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 Hollywood's not giving me what I want. Oh, really, honey? Do you know where you, Rena, you stepped into? You ever heard of showbiz? Showbiz, not show therapy, not show democracy, not show I'm going to get what I want. And if you don't like it, I mean, of course, we should work from within to make things better. But you got to learn to live with the hard part if you want the other part. You had a bit row and Gia. A bit roll. It's so old school. A bit. It's called a co-star. Thank you very much. <laughs> I forgot. I haven't seen it in a while. But I mean, I've it's seen fine. It three times. I'm kidding. It's so funny when people say no. The, the terminology like bit roll is not. Then it's always hurt. It's funny. I'm not to trying me. to be negative. No, I know I'm you're not. not. I know you're not. I, it makes me laugh because it sounds so like MGM in the '40s. You know, because that's what it would be back then. Had a bit putt. Anyway, yes, I played an assistant. I played many gay assistants, and that was one of them. Faye Dunaway was in it. I know. Was she it. exhibiting diva behavior <laughs> on set or getting homophobic with the gays? I was never with her. I don't know. If only her scenes were all with her and Angelina. Angelina was amazing and fantastic. And I was, it was before she was famous or people really didn't know that much who she was. And I was in awe of her acting ability. That's, that's the only, I, her and I worked with a, this woman who played the other assistant. And then I worked with the guy who played Scavulo and Angela. So I sadly never crossed paths with Mercedes rule or Faye Dunaway. I love mama dearest. <laughs> Me too. You did an episode of angel. Yes. Joss the Whedon. The pilot. Has, yeah. Joss Whedon has been accused of being a toxic boss. Was he a dick when you shot your episode? No, I, I always, this is before his rep. I mean, I no, I, my experience was fine. I barely was around him. I remember auditioning for it and talking to one of the producers and him. And I was like, Oh my gosh, Joss Whedon. Cause I had always wanted to be on Buffy. Cause I loved it. And I had a bunch of my friends run Jack Plotnick, Tom Lent, Kali Rocha, um, more like I was close friends of mine were like, Buffy in the Buffy canon and I never was which <laughs> hurt my feelings but I did get to do like Angel so they said you when I auditioned for this like very small bit part in uh the Angel pilot I was like heck yeah and then I got I don't even remember what I do I remember it's, I'm barely in it and then I still get checks for you know a dollar 98 from Angel <laughs> Joss Whedon was fine like I didn't have any problem I wasn't around him enough people like me in those roles like it's you know I'm sure it's different for women. Tom Link, I know my friend Tom has worked with Joss a lot. I, I don't know what any of that's that's about, so I can't really speak to it. But I believe women. I believe the people who say it was like that. That's for sure. David Boreanis recently uploaded a video on the internet. 
Have is you seen this kind of podcast? <laughs> no, I have not. <laughs> but David was another one that I knew back in my casting days. And then I was like, when we did Angel, I was like, I wonder if he'll remember me. And he totally didn't. I mean, at least he pretended to. He was so nice. Because I, I, I was in a scene with him, I guess. Or he was, I remember where I was with him. I don't, again, remember we were in Redondo Beach. That's all I remember. No, I haven't seen it. I'm not going to talk about people's naked videos on this podcast. <laughs> Jesus. I'm a good Christian woman. <laughs> you did Pushing Daisies. I, I love did. the show. It was beyond weird and morbid. Were you shocked it got canceled? Um, I was sad. I don't know that I was shocked because I knew how expensive it was because it was a very expensive show to produce because you saw it. It's like It was amazing. Lots of, lots of effects. Yes, and production design, and that stuff takes time and like money. Um, I, the the thing about me is like I was actually in the second episode. Brian Fuller is an old friend I've known for forever and a great guy, and he put me another one of these people that have been nice enough to put me in their stuff. And I had this whole little in the second episode. I play a florist at the funeral home from the pilot, I think, and then I die, and they have to wake me. You know, he does. Uh, Lee Pace does the thing to me that he can do where, he, you know, I, go, I come back to life forever. And they question me on it. But I remember I was in a morgue set on a slab in my panties laying on a, yeah, on a, in a morgue. And it was creepy. And then when I died, I the giant fishbowl goes on my head and I drowned in it. But they put the water in with um, CGI, but it never ran. So then, like, I was, that was what I was sad about. And then the next season, he was like, oh, this role is yours if you want to do it. And I was like, heck, yeah. I was sad because I was hoping to see more of it because I really enjoyed it. Your first acting gig was Wings in terms of television. How yeah. did you get that part? It was my first TV sitcom. Yeah, I'd done commercials. Um, but like I was saying before, I was working at uh, doing works, working at this casting facility called PAG, Professional Artist Group. They had these casting director workshops that you would six weeks whatever it was, 150, 200 bucks. They've been determined to be illegal now, which is a different story. You would pay your money. The casting person would come in, talk about what their show, talk about what they do, answer questions, give, give a talk about, you know, their, what they expected from actors, hand out scripts. You would read them. So one of those Sheila, Sheila Guthrie, um, she was the casting director for wings she was amazing. She brought me in to read for that one line part for meeting me in those workshops. And I got it. And I remember like it was at Paramount and I booked it. And then the casting assistant, Jeff, Jeff Greenberg, who later went on to cast millions of things, including modern family. He walked me over to set and it was Paramount. And I remember that because it was the same in my brain. I might be conflating this, but it was the same stage at Paramount where they shot Laverne and Shirley. I think someone told me that at least that's what I'm going to believe. And I was so excited because that was my favorite, favorite, favorite childhood shows. And I was, it was, and that it's also that part of Paramount that used to be Desi Lou and then used to be RKO Hollywood. So it's like an amazing lot to be on. I was like, oh my God. So it was really cool and fun. Besides your work on TV series and in movies, you've done several successful plays like Facts of Life, Golden mm -hmm. Girls, and Homecoming Queens Got a Musical with my fave. Julie Brown. Oh, Julie's the best. She's the absolute Have you ever treasure. thought about bringing these productions to West Virginia? In particular, no. the Clay oh. Center. <laughs> the thing about that is if someone wants to pay for it and pay for us to fly us out and do it, fine. But like we are the four of us, Jackie Beat, Sherry Vine, me and Drew are already pretty busy. Especially now that like um, to the degree that it is that 
businesses back. Um, you know, it's not out of the question. I mean, it, it's just a matter of someone wants to produce it. Like it, that's the, that's the work, you know, it's a lot of work to pull all that together and produce it and fly us there and put us up and do all that stuff. And then is there any money left over? I don't know. It's not, I don't want to do it so much that I want to produce it or put up with all the headache. I'd rather stay in LA and do it here. Um, but you know, it's not out of the question. It's not, it's nothing against West Virginia. I think that would be amazing there. It's just logistics schedule. The art scene here is bland and shitty. So, <laughs> Well, do you think enough people would come? And you are generous to call them plays because we really just do the scripts from this for facts of life and golden girls. We just do the scripts from the sitcom, the actual scripts, but we're dudes in drag for the most part, dudes, not all of us. I think people would. It's well, different. See. It's different. And we need different here. Yeah, for sure. I was watching Celine Luna's music video on YouTube called <laughs> Calling It Out. Was oh, that shit. you hovering over a bunch of dancers with Celine, Jackie Beat, Nadia Ginsburg, and Calpurnia Adams? Andrew Drogi and Mario Diaz. Yes, that was me. Uh, Selene is how you say it. I was just with her last week in Palm Springs. Yeah, I love that. That was so fun. Our friend Billy Butler directed it. We had those, I was in some kind of Napoleonic sort of situation. That was really fun. Yeah. I yeah, I, thought, so I saw that 10 years ago. Yeah, I think wow, it, was I guess 10 it years has ago. been 10 years. Wow. Yeah. Because I remember I was still drinking. That's for sure. <laughs> it was a fun little video. Um, you did, as I, as I mentioned, you did the Golden Girls with Jackie B. Is Jackie a diva? Does he <laughs> throw tantrums on and off set? No comment. <laughs> yes. Jackie, can, Jackie's Jackie. Jackie will never change. I've known Jackie since 92. I love and adore Kent. That's Jackie's real name. Uh, he His pronouns are whatever. He, his, or they, she, her. And um, yeah, she's something. I mean, she's brilliant. Lots of brilliant people are, you know, a little high strung, a little high maintenance. We all I have love his videos. Bit. They're hilarious. A fucking genius. Yeah. I first discovered you in the mid 2000s. I bought Medusa Dare to Be Truthful <laughs> directly from Julie Brown, the DVD. The DVD, somehow, it came here. It popped out of its case. It was scratched to hell. <laughs> I sent it back oh my God. Julie because it was from Julie herself. And she wrote me a really nice apology letter. <laughs> and she sent me her CD single of I Want to Be Gay. And on the back was you as singing backing on that. Yeah, That's I how I first discovered you. That's why. How did you meet Julie? I'm trying to remember. Well, I, I first knew of her back when she did her um, show on MTV, Just Say Julie, right? And um, mm -hmm. which I loved. And then I always thought she was. And then we just knew people in common. And, you know, I don't remember. It's weird. I don't remember. I do remember the first time I worked with her was she was doing her one woman show at Casita del Campo, where we now do Golden Girls. Um, of all her greatest hits, which you would have loved. And then me and Terrence Michael, who we had just done Facts of Life together. He was, he played Cousin Jerry and I played, oh, that's how we met. Now it's coming to me. When we first did Facts of Life in the late 90s, Christian McLaughlin, who was the, uh, he's a writer, a TV writer, and, and uh, writes lots of things, but he was the producer director and he pulled that together. And he knew Julie. And so she was one of the, Nat. we had rotating guest Natalie's. We had like Margaret Cho, Jackie Beat, and then Julie. And then that's when we were doing the Facts of Life, Life Stage version. 
And after that, immediately the Chips live stage version. And me and my friend Steve Sobel played Joe and Blair and then Ponch and John. So Julie was in that and that's how I met her. And then a couple of years later, she asked me to be her like backup dancer, um, singer, drag queen for her one woman show, which I did a few times. At, that was in, I think, 04, 05. Um, and then we stayed friends. And then she always included me in things. And here's the thing about Julie that I adore. She always pays you like. This is the thing about Jackie Beat too. Like I love it when people pay me and I love to pay people. And I love it when my friends or acquaintances or anyone's like, hey, even if it's just 50 bucks and Julie is that woman, she always will pay you, which is not true, which is rare in this town. So, and then she asked me to do that um, voice on that, that record. Yeah. And then she, and then we did Homecoming Queens got a musical which she said, do you want to play the homecoming queen? And I was like, I don't want to shave my beard for it because I'll have a, I ended up shaving my beard anyway for the character I played, but I was like, I don't want to have to get in drag for the show. And so Drew did that. And I did the sassy gay best friend, which some, I still w wish I would do a could somehow do a couple of shows as the, as the um, drag queen. But like, I'm, you know, I'm a middle-aged hairy man. I, Getting into cute girl drag takes me a minute, and I am not a makeup expert by any means. In fact, when I do drag, not in Sophia for Golden Girls, but when I do other drag, like when I did Blair and Facts of Life, I hire my friend to do my makeup, and I pay them. <laughs> you starred with Ginger Minge in the movie Dumplin'. Yep. Ginger was on RuPaul's Drag Race All-Star 6 this year. I thought she was cheated. In my opinion, Ginger should have won the crown. What's your thoughts? I got to tell you, this is the only one I haven't seen. Like, I don't have Paramount Plus, and I didn't see it. Um, who won? I don't even know. Kylie Sonic Love. Okay. Um, I didn't see it, so I can't. I, I love Ginger, but I cannot speak knowledgeably about this, this loss. I'm sorry. But I'm sure she did deserve it because she's amazing. Ginger was kicking ass. Great. Oh, she's incredibly talented. Very. Speaking of drag, you had a part in a really great movie. Girls will be girls. Oh, yeah. 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 Is Jack Plotnick as eccentric as Evie <laughs> off camera as he is on? No one is eccentric as Evie in the world ever. No, that movie was just so hilarious and so politically yeah. incorrect. I mean, yeah. I love it. Well, this, I'm glad it just got restored. You know, they did it in a high death. Oh, great. Oh, that's good. Okay, cool. I didn't know that. Or maybe I, I did. I think it was last year or early this year they re-released it. It's truly one of the funniest things ever. I'm so grateful to be a part of it. And we shot the sequel. Well, the sequel is all shot, but Richard Day, who wrote it and directed it and produced it, He's doing the second one that we're all in, but he is doing all the, this is my understanding. And I know this from Richard, but also from Jack. Richard is doing all the background and production design on a computer. Like he's teaching himself how to do it. So it's all going to be like, we will be the human beings, but everything else will be created by CGI. Um, and it's, it takes some time, but eventually it will be done. And I did see the scene that <laughs> Jack as Evie and me, not as the character I did in the first one, because that was, was like Coco's ex-fiance or something. In this one, I play Evie's agent. Is there I any have, chance of there being a Girls Will Be Girls TV series? Or I mean, I know there was well, some little web shorts. It. No, they tried it. Like it, it was gonna. It was it web was, shorts, right? Before that, though, it um, it was close to coming becoming a reality at Showtime. 
And like many things, I've been there a billion times, things I've been a part of or known about or been a major part of get real close and they don't go. It happens all the time. That's the other hard thing about Hollywood. So, so many things you think are going to be the next big thing or not, or don't go at all, or the pilot's made and it doesn't go, or there's 13 episodes and 13 episodes and no more. But I don't remember why it didn't go at Showtime at the last minute, but it didn't. And so then they shot those, those shorts for the, for the, who knows? Who knows? Like it's now that it's a friendlier drag world, a, a world that's friendlier to drag now. Who knows? We'll see. Do you think political correctness is going to stomp drag out or? I don't know. I don't know anything. Who knows? No, nothing will stop drag. I mean, nothing. But like yeah. it's, in terms of the politically incorrect thing, it's always going to change and ebb and flow what's, what people feel about different things. And we'll see. I don't know. As I mentioned previously, you co-wrote the script for Space Station 76 in the early 2000s with I know you, you co-wrote that with uh, Jan Brady, Jennifer Elise Cox, <laughs> yeah. and Jack Plotnick. Why did it take so long to get the wheels in motion to get it actually filmed? <sighs> you know, same thing. It's just like hard to get things going. Jack, we co-wrote that through improv that we developed in Jack's living room, and Jack transcribed everything and was the overseer, and it was his initial idea. that he, We wanted to do something that was like the ice storm in space. We did it as a play and it went well. And then we sold it a couple years. This was in 2001, I remember, if I remember correctly. And then by 2003 or four, we sold it as a, as a pilot to, to Comedy Central. And we were all going to play our roles. And then it just didn't make, you know, it's in development there in development. And then it doesn't go eventually, you know. Um, it, again, it was kind of ahead of its time, I feel like. It was the, that was the era of, of Comedy Central where it was like, you know, the man show and all that shit. Um, and then, you know, everything in Jack worked steadfastly on getting it made for years. And there were different, different iterations of like, this star might be in it. This, the Kristen Wig, I, for some reason, Kristen Wiggs and I like Kristen Wig might do it. This guy might do it. That person. And that takes forever, especially when it's an indie production and it's a sci-fi thing. And so that when it actually eventually got made, because I played the captain and the part that Patrick Wilson played in the movie. And I, my joke was, oops, I forgot to become a movie star. The, you know, we shot that in, I think, 2012. I forgot to become a movie star in the last 10 years. So I didn't get to play my part. Fine. Um, Liv Tyler played Kali Rocha, was one of the other writers. She also has a nice size part in the movie. I think the movie's wonderful. And I think Jock did an amazing job. And we got paid to be writers. So that was nice. And, um, and there were some, you know, there were some, there have been a lot of feelings and upsets and highs and lows around that production that I won't get into, but I'm glad it's made. I know it's a very specific, odd little creation, but I really wish that it had done better. You know, just, I wish more people had seen it at the time and people, the good news is like everything, people will continue to see it. I mean, I still get the freaking residual check. So somebody's watching it somewhere. Did the script get butchered by the time it, you know, it went through past this, I'm guessing many no. hands. No, because that was the thing about why it was so hard to get the money was that he wasn't budging on certain things and he wanted it to be a very specific way. Because when Jack wants something a certain way, it's going to be that way. And he is very steadfast about that and has a very specific vision that he knows how to execute and does really well. So no, it didn't. It, it, it was different than the play, but it was, no, it didn't, it did not get a bunch of because it was independent production, it didn't have a bunch of studio or network people over it going, change this, change this, change this. 
And, and those actors, Liv Tyler, Matt Bomer, who's amazing, and Patrick Wilson signed on to do that script, you know. So, I mean, some things got cut out, as like in all movies, but the script was shot as it was, is my understanding from what I remember. Again, this was like seven years ago, <laughs> I think, whenever that was. How do you feel about streaming platforms? Um, they are a joy for consumers, but for some people who provide the content, they're getting they many feel like they're getting cheated. Do you yeah, feel that's that why we all, well, that's why we almost had a strike for Yahtzee, which is the stage hand the, the the crew, the crew that does all the really hard work all day long, longer than any any actors are over there. Um, we almost had a strike here in the country because of that, but they and they haven't ratified the contract yet, but like hopefully we won't hopefully they will. I mean, I hope they get everything they want. If we had to strike, I was ready. We were all ready to. I mean, I've been through the commercial strike of 2000 and the writer strike of 2007, which really kicked my ass. So I was ready to strike and join the picket line with them. Um, and who knows, maybe in three years we will have to. But yeah, the streamers make zillions of dollars. They're not great. They they won't show you know their numbers for whatever reason. And it's just an ongoing thing. And we, as actors, have to, we redo our contracts with them every three years. And um so things that I did for streaming services 10 years ago, the residual suck. The ones I did two years ago are better. Um, yeah, we just have to fight for every goddamn nickel from them. But yeah, it, it is like, it's, I don't even know what to say. Is it like Spotify <laughs> does music artists? Is it that it's bad? Not, it's, it's not that bad from what I understand. I don't know my, that much about it, but we, we do, we do get paid well. And I mean, I can only speak from my own experience. I don't know what other people make. I have had, I'm great. I've done pretty well on them. The residuals are not like network television residuals used to be. Nothing will be because it's network television isn't, you know, what it used to be. You know, it just isn't. So, I mean, I'm just, I'm grateful in general. I think most people are for more jobs because when I started, there were three networks. When I moved here in 87, there wasn't even Fox. And so there was a lot less stuff. And so now there's a lot more shows. That doesn't mean it's all in LA. I mean, it's so global now, but there are more opportunities, more stories are being told, more voices are being heard. All that's great. Um, you just have to have pay people fair wages. And with the crew, it wasn't even the money. It was like getting, getting a meal break, having a turnaround, you know, like you can't drive these people like, like you shouldn't even work an animal like, you know, and it's also illegal to work an animal that much, you know, with these because they want to turn around time like for actors in our contracts. It's 12 on 12 off and or supposed to be, you know, 12 hours on set. Then you have to give us 12 off or they have to pay more of these. It's just it's called forced calls. But like crew didn't get that, especially on lower budget stuff. And they were like people were freaking exhausted. I don't even know how to do it because when actors get there in the morning, no matter how early it is, crew's already there. And when you leave, almost always crew's still there when you leave. So it's that's what we got to really take care of now is taking care that's of the union work. That's union. Those are union crews. Yahtzee. Yes. Already union. So that's so what, the unions are. Are they wakeish there or I don't I can't even get into it. It's too much. They're they're better. They're pretty good. I think I know you're a SAG after member, right? Yep. 12,000 actors lost their health care. Or we're in the process of losing their health care. Do you know what's going on with that? <laughs> Damn, I didn't know you were going to ask me all these news questions. No, I don't. I mean, you, you, it's, it's unfortunate. 
Um, I actually don't right now. I know that I sometimes in one's life, one has to take care of oneself and just like get that out of the way. Some people, I've never been someone that, that's run for a board. I always vote in the SAG elections. I'm not that involved in the union. Um, it doesn't interest me that much. Some people, I, I wouldn't be good at it. Um, some people really are. And so they do that. But I really do hope that, yes, it's, what sucks is every few years, our, this is so boring to most people. I can't imagine that anyone would care. Our health insurance, SAG health insurance is a completely different entity than our union. So the issue is with like, however, that SAG health thing's being run, they keep saying like, we're going to run out of money unless we raise premiums and raise the required amount you have to make a year. So every year that goes up, you know, and in most, I mean, ideally it'd be like, oh, we're, things are going well, business is booming. So yeah, that should match with like, what actors are making, but we know with acting and any most creative jobs, it's like that when I'm doing listeners is my hand up and now like have a six figure year, have a five, low five figure year back and forth, up and down a couple of these, a couple of that. So yeah, I'm just every year. I'm just like, whoo, that I've made health insurance and paid into my pension. I'm just really grateful, but yeah, they need to figure all that out. And I don't, I don't know what's going on right now about it. I'm sorry. Last year on an episode of love it or leave it, you spoke about age discrimination in the gay community. And one young man said something really snarky with you about he'd rather be dead than be your age. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you get, is that, I mean, do you see that a lot from youngins? No, he was just being a real bitch and he was trying to be funny and he had done some other things to me too. Um, I just, the, the thing was about that was crazy was crazy because it was you know i didn't i had no idea i was just asked to do a podcast like this one but it was on stage and had a really big crowd you know and then after I, and then they said submit three things to rant about and i submitted three things they picked that one and so when it comes up on the rant wheel or whatever it's called you rant about it i didn't plan any of that i mean i knew if i had to do it what i would say so then that went viral on twitter because of it and i don't have it's not like and I spoke more about it later. There have been different interviews. You can Google them. You can read about what I've said about it. But just briefly, um, I don't experience that a lot. I don't, but I don't look to be offended. I don't look to be, you know, my friends and the people I'm around or you teach people how to treat you. That's what I thought was weird about that guy. Cause that guy may have been a dick around me and lots of people. Let me just be clear. That person had treated lots of people really badly. I wasn't me picking on this and I've never said his, their name or any of that. Um, they know who they are, but so I wasn't like trying to cancel or lambaste this person. I just happened to be doing this rant on a podcast and people really responded to it. So what I would say, what's important of that is like, there are a lot of gay men or queer people who are older who do feel, you know, prejudiced or, or feel prejudice or bigotry or judgment or, or like offense from people that are younger, but that's, which sucks because they don't know what the older people had to go through and how many of our friends and compadres and family for me and my boss and people that we lost and how we had to watch our friends die, you know? And just my point was that like, just take a breath and, you know, um, don't be a dick about older people because a whole, I think I say something like a whole legion of men and women died. So you could have the life you have now. So you could be like out loud, proud doing your YouTube videos doing your Snapchats and your, your TikToks and queer, 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 all the time. And even my friends who are, you know, 10, 20 years younger than me say, 
oh my God, the kids now have no idea what it was like for us, even in the nineties or even in the thousands, like things have just exploded lately. Any like, projects you want to talk about? Um, I come you back can't soon. Talk about. I, I come back soon on a million little things. My character Carter comes back on the seventh episode of the season. And then I'm going back up there next week to do another episode and hopefully I'll be on more. And we're doing golden girls again. You can follow my Instagram. I'll say that follow me on Instagram at the Sam pancake. Uh, Twitter, J Sam Pancake, TikTok. I'm going to start TikTok and it, it's at Sam Pancake One, the numeral one. And uh, you can follow me on Facebook. And yeah, always things are always popping. Things are always popping up that I'm doing. We're doing Golden Girls again the middle two weekends of January if you're in LA. And that's all I know about for now. Sam Pancake went from waiter to Hollywood actor. He wasn't an overnight success. But with perseverance and great ambition, he made his mark in the entertainment industry, and he's not done yet. I hope this podcast episode inspires more young people in West Virginia and Appalachia to pursue a career in acting and the arts. I want to thank my guest, Sam Pancake. May you continue to have enormous success in Hollywood and in all your future artistic endeavors. You can listen to the Mothman in the Bible Belt podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube, and SoundCloud. Please check out my website, mothmaninthebiblebelt.com, for updates on new podcast outlets and links to my social media. Thanks for listening. <laughs>